If you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to 1 Timothy. Continuing on through our study through the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And just a real quick caveat from the title of the sermon. No one's leaving. All right? No one's leaving. The title of the sermon says, Who should you hire as a pastor? So this is not a peace out and gone or they're gone. Uh, and here's some tips for hiring an expat. That's not what's happening here. Um, I've told you before, it is my plan, my goal, uh, that the Lord would give me 30 or 40 years here. So if that's the case, maybe 30 more. Um, the Lord can do what He wants, and I would need to listen to whatever He says. But that's what I think. I think that's how a pastor, you know, I think that's how you pastor best. I don't think that the best plan for pastoring, I don't think it's the Lord's intention for shepherds to constantly be trading out their flocks for a bigger one that pays more. I don't think that that's what God designs for shepherds. But it's to plug in, it's to make, it's to put down roots, and it's to love people. It's to watch people be born, watch them get married, bury their parents, love, lead, guide, press on you for a long time. That's what I think of shepherds to do. I think that's how it works best. And so my plan, God can do whatever he wants. But my plan is that we would be here for a long, long time, and together we would watch how the Lord builds His church, uh, of which we're a little outpost here. So that's the caveat. No one's, no one's going anywhere. Uh, but there will come a day, even if it's two decades from now, or if one of your pastors, uh, Lord forbid, gets killed today, tomorrow, a couple years, um, there will come a day where you're going to need to hire a new lead pastor, and Lord willing, there will come a day where we will need to hire additional non-lead pastors just to be part of our uh, pastoral team and part of our elders. And so we need to know then how should we hire someone? Who should we hire? What should they look like? And while First Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, it seeks to accomplish like, a lot of things, I think that's one of the things that we can learn from this. Who should you have as a pastor? Who should you hire as a pastor? And if you already have pastors and elders, who should they be and what should they be like? And so that's how we're going to try to approach this text, at least initially today, which means for me, this is going to be a bit awkward because what I'm basically doing is telling you like who I should be while recognizing how deficient I fall in many of these areas. And then in the areas where in God's grace we may kind of get it right. I don't want it to come out like tooting our horn as a church. It's not my intention today. So it's awkward. I'm just acknowledging that from the get-go. But then I want to set the awkwardness aside and then let's just look at the text and make our way through it. And so five qualities I want to throw out to you of who you should hire when you come to a place where you need to hire a pastor, who we should hire. Five qualities uh, that should mark the pastors you do have the, and the elders that you have right now. And so let's look at the, let's read again. Um, and Christy just read for us, but just kind of get it in our mind again. Let's read it once more in total, and then we'll make our way through it. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. 
But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so just kind of context, just to kind of make sure we're on the same page, reset that. Paul's writing an open letter to Timothy, his protege in ministry. And it's an open letter because it's intended, like directed to Timothy, but it's intended to be read to the entire Ephesian church. And so he talks of things in here that are specific to Timothy, but he's also teaching the church as well. And so Timothy, we know as we look through uh, this book, also 2 Timothy, as well as places where he's mentioned in other uh, Pauline letters, Timothy's pretty young, probably mid-30s, low to mid-30s, and he's a bit timid, all right? He's not a take-charge type of guy. He's, he's reserved. He's a bit timid. And so Paul's writing this letter to him to give him some encouragement, but on top of that, he finds himself in the midst of a difficult situation. And when I first became a pastor, I could really identify with Timothy because he, he's in a church, okay, the church at Ephesus, and it's a church that's troubled by false leadership, false teaching, and some of which is even in the leadership of the church. And then also, Timothy's not afforded the typical respect that comes to a pastor when a church calls him to be a pastor because he wasn't called by the church. It just kind of happened to them. Paul said, he's going to be your pastor. And so the combination of all this, his not being chosen by the church, uh, his timidity and his age made him a perfect target for people to be like, who is this still wet behind the ears guy to tell me what to do? I can't learn anything from someone as young as him. And so Paul, in writing this, is both encouraging Timothy and teaching the church at the same time. And so he writes, first of all, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. And so he's saying, listen, church, you need to get over this idea of looking down on him because of his youth. Does he have some areas that he needs to grow in? Absolutely. And I'm about to give him some lessons on that. But he's your pastor. So you need to treat him like a Timothy and not a Timmy. And then to Timothy, he's saying, hey, regardless of how they treat you, here's what you are to do. You are to command and teach them. And specifically, here's how you are to do that. And here's where we start getting into those qualities I want to share with you today. Specifically, Timothy, you are to set the believers an example. And so as we apply this to the kind of person uh, you should have or hire as your pastor, number one, hire someone who sets an example. All right, so notes, hire someone who sets an example. Look at verse 12 again with me. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. How? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, 
impurity. And so a pastor, an elder in your church, this needs to be what they do. They need to be an example setter. They need to be an example setter as it relates to speech. To show people how to have a self-controlled tongue. That like Jesus can be reviled without reviling. Someone who can tame that wild tongue that James 2 talks of that's so destructive. And so he's to show people what a self-controlled tongue looks like, and yet he's not to be afraid to speak the truth. And not just the truth when people would applaud, but truth when also they will get mad. When they will take shots for it. And he's do this both in public and in private, speaking the truth in love. Right? He set an example of not being argumentative, wanting to be instead one of those blessed peacemakers that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and yet not afraid to take the, and wield the pastoral rebuke that he has at, at his disposal when needed. And even in that rebuke, it's not to be born out of anger or retaliation but out of love and affection and concern for God's glory and an individual's good, that they would wake up to their sin, to their danger, to their peril, repent and move, change. So he's to be an example in speech. He's also to be an example in conduct, all right? I mean, in essence, not to unsay with his life what he's saying with his lips. I've told you this before, but the best argument for and against Christianity. And this isn't just for pastors here. Everyone in this room. All right? The best argument for and against Christianity is how Christians practice their Christianity. It's the best argument for it. And it's the best argument against it. And if you were an absolute jerk. Self-righteous, harsh, unempathetic. Looking down upon people who do not agree with you. And treating them as if they are stupid or just a lesser person. Friend, I love you enough, and I'm going to give you an example of truth and love here. You are not commending the gospel. In fact, you're probably deterring people from it. But if you are endeavoring to be Christ-like, humble and patient, empathetic, meek, entering into the pain and the difficulties of other people's lives... And that heartbreak and that pain and that frustration and trying to get into their shoes. While recognizing that they, like you, are a sinner. And so you could be wrong in this. When we live lives that are godly. And that look like Jesus. And are gracious. That's when we commend the gospel. So set an example in conduct. Endeavor to act like Jesus. And then also a pastor is to set an example in love. I mean, the two greatest commandments are what? This is Sunday school time. Answer. Yeah, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, April 4th was the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination. It was one of the... Just one of many tragic days in our nation's history. And what he was contending for still hasn't happened. 
And one of the reasons for that is because many pastors, white pastors, did not set an example in loving their neighbors. I'm paraphrasing a clip from Wigan Duncan that I saw a day or two ago. He made an argument. I'm going to kind of paraphrase that. If pastors would have modeled before their people a simple application of the second commandment, love your neighbor, we would not be anywhere near the racial tensions in this world that we're in. If pastors would have done that. But by and large, through the years, white pastors failed to set this example in full. Love your neighbor, except certain neighbors. That was the way it was taught. In the midst of slavery, pastors largely ignored the second commandment. How can you love your neighbor and enslave them? So, they ignored it. They taught the church to do the same. Jim Crow South, again. Pastors ignored the second commandment. They taught their church to do the same. To the point that even today... Many people will get antsy or annoyed when someone starts applying the second commandment to the issue of race. And part of the reason we get annoyed and we get antsy is because we were taught to ignore this truth so well by our pastors. That's not how it's supposed to be. A pastor is to set an example in loving God and loving his neighbor. And Jesus, somebody asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gave the example of the Good Samaritan. How can you miss that? And yet we did for so long. He's to love God. He's to love his neighbor. And in particular, pastors to love those under his spiritual care. To love the church. Love them enough to speak truth and love. And pour his life there. He's also to be an example in faith and in purity. Look at the text again. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Okay, he's to be faithful and he's to be pure sexually. But not just sexually, but in all areas. Mind, finances, he's to be faithful and pure. He's to seek purity and live that out. This is what elders, this is what pastors are to do. That does not mean that I or another one of our elders are always going to get it right. Because we're not. We're going to botch it. It's going to happen. Has happened. It's going to happen some more. But hopefully even then when that happens will be an example of what repentance looks like. And what asking for forgiveness looks like. And then forgiving forgiveness. What that looks like. And so church, if you've ever got to hire a pastor, hire one that sets an example for the believers, all right? Super important. That's number one. Number two, hire someone who is devoted to the Bible. Hire someone who is devoted to the Bible. Every word of it. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
And so uh, hire someone who's devoted to the Bible. Quoting Kent Hughes, he says, This simple sentence is a landmark text in defining the major work of the pastor and the worship of the church. All right, Major work of the pastor and the worship of the church. And so as it relates to reading, I don't think we appreciate the historicity, the tradition, and the importance of the public reading of Scripture. The roots of this date back well into the Old Testament to Ezra and Nehemiah. When they, uh, you know, you can go there and you can read about how the men and the women of Israel, standing from early morning until midday, as Ezra read the law. This is one of the reasons why many congregations, ours included, stands when we have public reading of the Scripture. And we don't have to call it out because in the way we've constructed the flow of the uh, liturgical order of the church, you're already standing. When we have an Old Testament reading, you're already standing. When we have a New Testament reading, you're already standing. And so we constructed it that way. And we also constructed it so that we have two readings every week. Nearly every week. That's our norm. We have one from the Old Testament and we have one from the New Testament. And this is an ancient early church practice. Just after the first century, Justin Martyr wrote, wrote this. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place and the, and the memoirs of the apostles, New Testament, and the writings of the prophets, Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. And so the church is to read Scripture publicly. But it also needs to be explained. So he talks about exhortation, he talks about teaching, he's talking about a sermon. That's what he's talking about. This is what a pastor is to do. It's not just to be any old sermon that he just comes up with. Is to be an expositional sermon. That is a sermon that's determined by the text and the point of the text. John Stott put it like this. It was taken for granted from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is, that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which had been read. Biblical exposition was the apostolic norm. Therefore, any preaching that does not guide the listener through the scriptures is an aberration from the apostolic practice. That's why we do what we do. It's the way it's always been done. It's what it's, well, there's people who do dramas and there's people who do all kinds of stuff, but we are to read the scripture and we are to exhort people. That is what the church is to do. And so that's... That's why we do this. I, I do not sit around. John does not sit around. Chad does not sit around all week long and be like, hmm, what is something neat I could say this week? You know, we just study a portion of Scripture and then come in here and try to teach it to you. That's what we do. And so if you are hiring someone, hire someone who is devoted to the Bible. All right? Every word of it. So hire someone who sets an example. Hire someone who's devoted to the Bible. And now, number three, hire someone who is called and gifted. Called and gifted. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy 
when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so number three, again, hire someone who's called and gifted. And this idea of, of calling, like as a, as a pastor, there are going to be days, elders, there are going to be seasons where you want to quit, where you want to walk away. And it is only in knowing that God has called you to this that you will stay with it. That you won't run. And so this idea of calling has got both an inner quality and an outer quality or dimension. Like the, like the inner dimension is, is like a subjective feeling. Is God calling me into ministry? Is that what he wants me to do with my life? And you just kind of begin to sense something there. You begin to kind of wonder about that. And if ultimately he does, that's the Holy Spirit. If ultimately it's not you going to the pastor, that's bad pizza. Or worse. And so on this inner dimension of being called, I still remember clear as day, uh, two words of advice that... Uh, I was given when I was wrestling with this question. I went to our um, associate pastor at First Baptist Atlanta, dear brother named Gerald Spicer. He's a pastor of One Heart Church in Norcross now. And I asked Brother Gerald, what, like, how do you know if you're being called in, like, I, I don't, am I, how do, how do you know? I, I kind of feel like maybe God might be calling me into ministry, but I'm not sure, and I don't really want to do that. I have a five-year plan for my life, and this is not part of it, so... If I'm doing this, I want to make sure. And so I can still remember a clear as day what he told me. He first told me two things. One, he said, Joe, if you're called today, you're going to be called tomorrow. So don't freak out about trying to figure it out right now. That calling will still, he probably didn't say freak out. He probably said something very eloquent. But that's the way I remember it. So don't worry about trying to figure it out right now. It will still be there. And then he basically paraphrased Charles Spurgeon, and he said, the second thing I would encourage you to do is try to do anything else you can. Anything else you can. And if you can be content in that, then do it. That's what God's calling is for your life. But if you can't, then maybe you are called. And so there's this inner dimension of calling, all right? But there's also this outer dimension, and that is a calling out by the church. It's the church recognizing that guy may be called. God may be doing something in that guy. He may want that person to help shepherd a church, help shepherd our church maybe. Something's happening in that guy's life. And so it's the church recognizing that and then giving that man opportunities, giving that man, uh, you know, time and investing in him, energy, discipleship, money, helping him go to seminary. And ultimately, if it becomes clear to the individual and to the church that the Lord is calling this man into pastoral ministry, then the church lays on hands. And prays and commissions him to the work of the gospel. This is where the idea of ordination comes in. Though ordination isn't in the Bible. It's kind of a tradition that some churches do and some churches don't. But laying on hands, commissioning for the work, that is in the Bible. That's what we see right here. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So it's this guy's ordination. Ordination. 
And it's important, pastors, elders, to remember that time when the church laid hands, they prayed on you. To remember that God has called you personally, the church has confirmed that externally, and so you've got to hang on to that when it gets hard. And hang on to the fact that God has gifted you as well. I mean, if he's called you, he's gifted you. God does not necessarily call the gifted, but he will gift the called. But a lot of times the way that looks is just like a supernatural influx of the Spirit into things that are already naturally gifts that he's given you just in common grace. It's just that now they get supercharged or they get switched on or like a car engine, they get nitrous. They're upped greatly. And so, friends, in the hiring process of any vocational pastor, make sure you hire someone who's been called internally, who's been called externally, and has been gifted by the Holy Spirit with the things he needs to be able to do what has been said so far. Setting an example and preaching the word. All right, so that's number three. Number four, hire someone who will keep pressing. Hire someone who will keep on pressing. Look at verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. A pastor cannot be someone who sits on his laurels. He is an unfit pastor if he grows complacent and comfortable. If he's not always pressing on for continuous improvement. Laziness is always a sin, but it is a damning sin in the pastorate. A pastor is to push. He is to press. He is to make progress. He is to practice. He is to immerse himself in his work. And so a pastor is to work hard. Never settle. And if you're toying with the idea of the, you know, am I called to this? And you do not have just a straight up strong, I will do whatever it takes to get it done, no matter what type of work ethic, then don't go into the ministry. Straight up, there is simply no success in ministry apart from hard work. Period. Paul is hammering on this. Practice. These things. Immerse yourself in them. That others may see you make progress. If pastors are not making progress and continually improving, then maybe they don't need to be a pastor. You've got to do work. Press forward always. Making progress. It needs to forever be pressing both personally and pastorally. Like personally, is to be working hard at pursuing godliness, just as all Christians are. Slaying his sin, putting it to death, fighting it. And at developing the gifts that God has given him. While we're all to do this, the pastor is to lead in setting an example of being a lifelong learner. He's to never stop learning. He's to constantly be reading. Constantly pouring into study. Constantly seeking to improve his craft. He's to make progress, becoming more like Christ. I'm being a better teacher and a better leader. And so he's to keep pressing personally, but he's also to keep pressing pastorally, 
pressing the church, never settling, never getting comfortable with where the church is. You know, we've, we've moved, we've achieved a few things. God's pressing, pressing, pressing always. Pressing the church to fulfill its God-given purpose. Pressing the church to know and live the Scriptures. Pressing the church to change, to become more in line with the Scriptures. Pressing the church to repent where needed and to be the church and not just do church. Pressing the church to day by day just become more Christ-like. And never stop pressing. Don't stop when the church arrives at a particular place and don't stop when opposition arrives. Press always for the purity of Christ's gospel and the good of those entrusted to your care. John MacArthur is a pastor in California and he said of a pastor's role, I am not there to grow the membership, but to agonize over the sanctification of the membership. We press. Pastors are to press on you. If I'm not stepping on toes, I'm probably not doing my job. If John's not stepping on your toes, he's probably, if, if Chad, if Steve, if Jeff, and then stepping on your toes, he's probably, probably not doing our job. To press on us. To become more Christ-like. There's always room for improvement. In my life, yes and amen. In your lives, yes and amen. Since I come from an athletic background, I have all these quotes that I memorized that were just helpful just in my, like, wanting to, uh, just completely absent of God, just my own betterment and improvement and glory, right? But God's redeemed them in many ways, and now they are just in my mind, lodged in my mind, but they're applied to my life as a, as a Christian. So I shared one of them with you last week as we were talking about, you know, training ourselves for godliness and so it was that Vince Lombardi quote that uh, the will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. So we've got to do work to train ourselves for godliness, right? So that was one. But then another one uh, that's really kind of fitting for where we're at today is just that old quote, good, better, best. Never let it rest till your good is your better and your better is your best. And that's fitting here. We're depressed. Good, better, best. Never let it rest. To your good is your better, and your better is your best. And so hire someone who will keep pressing. And then finally, hire someone who is balanced and self-critiquing. Balanced and self-critiquing. So look at verse 16 with me. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, he's not talking about, like, if you don't do this, you're not going to be saved, and neither are your hearers. Like, that your salvation is dependent upon your pastors doing all these things. He's not talking about that. He's making a large statement of how important it is for pastors, elders, to do these things. It deals with life and death. And so he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And so a pastor's got to be balanced. He's got to be balanced in his life and in his doctrine. A pastor who's deficient in either one of those areas is not a pastor. To be balanced. And so he's to be concerned with how he's living his life. We kind of talked about that out of verse 12. 
But he's also to be concerned with what he's doing as it relates to doctrine, how he's protecting it, how he's guarding it, how he's seeking to continuously understand it better and then pass that on. And it's this balance of, of life and doctrine that is the key to spiritual success. Like doctrine gets a bad rap all the time. When I say doctrine, I can almost see people like, oh, here we go. Doctrine gets a bad rap. Do- doctrine is unbelievably practical. It has everything to do with your life. Everything to do with your life. Because what we believe about God determines how we live. What you believe about God determines how you live. Everybody's a theologian. And so the more we know about God, know about how, who He is and how He works, the more we'll love Him and the better we will serve Him. I mean, it's like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Do you love Jesus right now? should be a head nod this way. If you love Jesus right now, do you like, think that if you learn more about Him, you'll suddenly not love Him? You'll love Him more. Right? So why then do we act like it's some... Oh, doctor, I need to stay away. I got enough of Jesus for me right now. I don't want any more. It doesn't even make sense. It's not even logical. To know doctrine is is a calling. It's unbelievably practical to life. And so you got to have this balance. Concerned about doctrine, but also, yes, balanced with life. Verse 12 again, setting an example. Living out your faith with your life, not just speaking it with your lips. And so you've got to have this balance, but the pastor also has to have an ability to self-critique. To examine himself on these things. Because he's to keep a close watch on himself. And so he's got to be continually asking himself, how am I doing? How am I doing as a pastor? How am I doing personally as a Christian? Am I walking faithfully with God? Am I living a life of obedience? Am I, am I seeking that? Am I falling forward at least? How's my speech? How's my conduct? How's my faith? How's my love? How's my purity? How's my doctrine? How's my teaching? Am I growing in that? Am I truly biblical? Have I conformed Scripture to culture? Are there areas where culture has been co-opted or where Scripture has been co-opted by culture in the past and now I need to help, try to help bring reform to that? And am I willing to do that? How am I doing? Am I living my life like this? These are to be marks of a pastor that you should hire and that you should have. But while these are particularly, I mean, Paul is writing to Timothy saying, Hey, Timothy, I know you're in a tough spot. Here's how to pastor. All right? Command and teach and set an example. All these things. This is like for him as a pastor and for you in what you should expect from your pastor. It's not just for a pastor. It's also for a Christian. It's for every single one of us. All of these things that he's mentioned are for every single one of us. Because God calls all. All of us in the ministry. Theologically, we call it the priesthood of the believers. Every single one of us is called in ministry. And so this is true for every single one of us. 
And so just application-wise, real quick, I want you I want to walk back through these super fast, and I want you to mark through the word higher, scratch it out with a pen, and I want you to write the word B. B. All right? So scratch out the word higher and write in the word B. And so, dear friends, let all of us be someone who sets an example. Every single one of us. God calls you, me, to this. How? In our speech. Be someone who sets an example in your speech. Be someone who sets an example in your conduct. Be someone who sets an example in your love. Be someone who example. You know what I'm saying? In faith and in love and in purity. All right? Be someone who sets an example. And be someone devoted to the Bible. Be someone devoted to the Bible. You, me, all of us, be devoted to the Bible. And not just in theory, yeah, devoted to the Bible, but in practice. Read it. Open it up and read it. It is life. It is light. It tells you about God. And it tells you about you. And it tells you about the holiness of God. And the goodness of God. And the glory of God. And the grace of God. And your sinfulness. And yet in mercy he's made a way for you to be made right with him. Through Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection in your place for your sins. There's no other way but that way. But that God's made a way when he didn't have to. Devote yourself to the Bible. It is food. It is light. It is life. Read it. Devour it. So be someone who sets an example. Church, every one of us, let's be that person. Let's be someone devoted to the Bible. And let's be someone who is called and gifted because you already are. You are called, and you have been gifted. He calls every single one of us to the ministry, and he gifts us for it. And so employ your gifts and embrace them. And don't be like, man, I wish I had that guy's gift. Why do I just have this gift? This isn't a, I want that gift. No, 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 no. God's a wise God, and he gave the gifts to his people that he wants. So don't be envious of gifts. Embrace yours. He gave it to you. He didn't give it to anybody else. He gave it to you. And that's a pretty amazing thing that God Almighty thought of you and said, I'm going to wire them in this way for this reason, for my glory. And I'm not going to wire anyone else that way. This is their job. That's pretty awesome. Be someone who is called and gifted because you are. Fourthly, be someone who will keep pressing. All of us are to keep pressing. We are never to settle in in our Christian life. We're not to grow complacent. We keep pressing. We never settle. Good, better, best. Never let it rest. To your good is your better and your better is your best. Keep pressing. And then fifthly, be someone who's balanced and self-critiquing. All of us. Watching our life and our doctrine. Do they match? And... Self-examining ourselves. How am I doing in this? Am I living it? Is Christ truly the treasure of my heart? Or am I an idolater in some area? 
Are there patterns of sin in my life? Are there sins in my life that I'm not recognizing? I'm blind to. God opened my eyes to them. This is a call to all of us. And so here's how I want to end today. A little bit different. Sometimes we don't ever even take the time in the middle of the week to just get quiet before God and examine our hearts. And so I want to do that now. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes of silence. And then I'll pray and close this out and the band will come and we'll sing one final hymn. But while we are in silence, I want you to do this kind of self-critiquing. Am I walking faithfully with God? Am I seeking to live a life of obedience? Understanding that God does not expect perfection. Praise the Lord Jesus was perfect for us. And so we're not under condemnation, but he says, press on, work hard at this. Work out your salvation. We, so you have salvation. This is Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? So you work it out, but it's already been given to you. God is the one who works and wills in you. So am I walking faithfully with God? Am I being obedient? Am I seeking that? Am I striving for that? Am I, what's my example like? What kind of example am I setting? In my speech, in my conduct, in my faith, in my love, in my purity. Am I devoted to the Bible or do I get most of my cues in life from culture? What drives me? Do I settle? Am I balanced? And so let's take a couple minutes and let's self-critique. It's just going to be silent and then I'll pray. Father, forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us for where we have failed you by just slipping 
And forgive us where we have failed you purposefully. With full knowledge of what we're doing. Conform us to Christ's likeness. Transform us to be like Christ. Help us to take up your means of grace in that. To be washed with the word. To read it. To renew our minds daily. Father, help us to be examples. Of your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy. To those around us. Help us to be devoted to scripture. Help us to live out the calling on our lives. Embracing the giftings that you've given each one of us in Christ. Father, help us to press. To not be complacent. To not be lazy. And help us to be balanced and and be honest with ourselves in self-critique. Open our eyes to sin. That we might repent and turn from it. And open our eyes afresh to grace. How sweet it is. And let your love for us, while you press on us to be transformed to be more Christ-like, that's out of a desire for our good. But there's grace for our failings. Christ is our perfection. His blood was shed to pay for our sins. And His righteousness, His sinlessness, His perfections, all that He did right has been given to us like a blanket that covers us, such that now when you look at us, we are in Christ, we are covered by that, and we are seen as righteous, not because of anything we've done, but the grace we've been given because of what Christ has done. So, Father, let that truth, let that, what you've done for us, fill us, even in the midst of understanding. We have work to do. Let it fill us with hope. So you don't quit on us. You don't forsake us. You don't leave us. You promise that you will complete the good work that you started in us. You will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we long for that day. But until that day, let us be faithful now. And let us love you with not just our lips, but with our lives. In the name of Christ, amen.